Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, falling cats and stem cell tourism. But first up, here's the news. (music) Military drones for farmers. Ninox Robotics is trialling heat-seeking military unmanned aerial vehicles. Those creepy death-from-the-sky fixed-wing airplane-looking drones terrorising people around the world for Australian farmers to help them kill wild animals that damage their crops. The farmers lose an estimated billion dollars every year to feral pigs, foxes, dogs, cats and rabbits, all introduced species that harm the environment. These semi-automated, remotely piloted aircraft would spot the unwanted animals from above and relay the information to pest control officers to work out how to hurt them. At present, the drones themselves are not armed to shoot or bomb the animals, but they may be used to drop poison baits nearby. The Australian company has been given special clearance from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority to conduct trials in two states. They've been granted special clearance to fly up to 490 metres high, which is well above the 123 metre or 400 foot ceiling that every other unmanned vehicle operator in Australia must respect. In addition, they have special permission to fly at night, which is essential to make best use of their heat-based cameras. These military-grade drones have a wingspan of 3 metres and weigh about 10 kilograms each. For comparison, Predator drones are 4 times longer and 100 times more massive. The Ninox Robotics drones cost 6 figures each. The drones are powered by lithium batteries that let them fly for 5 hours guided by GPS and their operator. They fly with live video transmissions back to base, first-person view. They can fly up to 120 kilometres per hour and up to 10 kilometres away from the operator. Ninox Robotics plan to hire ex-military drone pilots who've flown operations in Afghanistan. Ninox Robotics say they would probably charge $3,500 for a four-hour sortie with a fully deployed team and for the information they gathered. The drones are currently flying around farms near Mooney and Charleville in southern Queensland and in Walker in New South Wales. Near Mooney, farmers hire professional feral pig shooters using a helicopter three times a year. 
The Mooney farmers hoped that by using the information gathered by the drones, they could save some of the money they spend dealing with feral animals. The Ninox robotics drones were also tested to conduct a mock rescue of a person lost in the bush, search for small brush fires over five kilometres away using thermal imaging, and cataloguing a flock of sheep. Let's hope the arms race between animal and farmer doesn't escalate. Cataracts dropped. Using research from observations of children with mutant genes, researchers at the University of California, San Diego, led by Ling Chow, have developed an eye drop that can dissolve cataracts, eliminating the need for eye surgery. A cataract is a cloudy lens in your eye caused by crystalline proteins that normally keep your eyesight clear by their structure, instead clumping together and obscuring your vision. The only available treatment has been expensive surgery to remove the clouded lens. Cataracts are the world's major cause of blindness. The researchers had seen children with an inherited susceptibility to get cataracts in their eyes, and they found that these children had a mutation that stopped the hormone lanesterol from being produced in their body. However, when the parents of the children didn't have the mutation, they also didn't get cataracts. So they reasoned that maybe the lanosterol prevents or reduces cataracts in people without the mutation. In their first experiment, they tested lanosterol on human lens cells in petri dishes and found that it significantly reduced the lab model of cataracts. Next, they tested lanosterol on rabbits with cataracts. After a six-day trial, 11 out of 13 rabbits had significantly improved cataracts. Finally, they tested lanosterol drops on seven different breeds of dogs with cataracts. And the eyes of all seven dogs improved. The researchers don't know how the body uses lanosterol to reduce the cataracts. Their paper was published in the journal Nature and was titled Lanosterol Reverses Protein Aggregation in Cataracts. Their next step will be trials on humans with cataracts. I hope they get funding for much larger numbers of patients than they used in their animal trials, or the benefits of lanosterol will not be clear. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At 6pm on Friday the 14th of August, the 10th annual Einstein Lecture will be given as part of the Sydney Science Festival at the Powerhouse Museum. This year's speaker is Dr. Ken Silburn, head teacher of science at Kasula High School and president of LASTA, the Metropolitan Southwest Science Teachers Association. In part two of our interview, I began by asking Ken, what is terminal velocity? Terminal velocity, it's a pretty nasty thing when you think about the word terminal, so you think about like a terminal disease. But it's not that bad when you, when you think about it. However, there are misconceptions. So when we talk about terminal velocity, that's the maximum velocity that you can expect a body would reach as it's approaching Earth because of air resistance. Now, we've seen experiments where people have dropped balls off, you know, off balconies and 
if you've got one ball which is heavier than the other, most people would expect that the heavier ball will hit the ground first. But it's just a, it's a misconception. They both hit the ground at, at exactly the same time. So they've even had those experiments on the moon where they've dropped the hammer and a feather and they've hit the ground at the same time. And that's because of the, the air resistance. That's, that's the only effect. For people who aren't familiar with that experiment, it goes back to Galileo worked on that one, didn't he? Yes. yes. Famously dropping a cannonball in a feather. And so on Earth, the feather goes slowly because of air resistance. And on the moon, where there's no air, they both fall at exactly the same rate, which is what Galileo predicted. Yes. One of the, the novel things, I suppose, if I was to jump off an aeroplane and you know, plummeting towards the Earth, then I would reach my maximum velocity very fast, and, and that would be at 200 kilometres per hour. If I was a cat, though, smaller body less air resistance, my maximum velocity as a cat is 100 kilometres per hour. And you think, okay, so what's, what's the story behind that? What's, you know, where can you lead it to? Well, there was a major study done in, back in mid-1970s over in New York. And New York being a very big city, they've got hospitals which are designed for cats and hospitals which are designed for, for dogs. There was a study which was done looking at the mortality of injuries for, for cats and then falling off high-rise buildings. Now, what they found was really amazing. If you, if you were a cat and you dropped from it or up to um, four storeys, then anything after that, your injuries would actually decrease. And, in fact, it's only probably about 10% mortality for for cats up until four four stories whereas for humans if anything over eight stories then basically we're dead now the reasoning behind that is as well as the the difference in the terminal velocity because the cat will will hit the ground at a maximum of of 100 kilometers per hour is that as the cat actually falls it's then it starts to get relaxed so when it does hit the ground it's going to hit the ground without being, being really stiff. Whereas for us, we're probably not going to be that, that flexible at the time. Sounds like a, another experiment where there wasn't any ethics. Well, this was an experiment which was done on, on data that they collected. So um, I don't think the, the cats were pushed. I'm glad to hear it. And you're involved with Space Camp. Yes, the, um, every year, um, LASDA, the Met Southwest Science Teachers Association, we've actually organised for a, a trip for students and teachers to go to, the, to Huntsville to do the Advanced Space Academy program. And that's been it for the last five years. And it's been extended because the, the trip to the, the States, just to do a, a six-day course... Mm-hmm. Um, we've actually extended it now, so it goes for 18 days. So within that trip, we do a cultural visit for three days to South Korea, um, including a visit to a, a Korean school. Then we do some science activities on the, the West Coast, um, California Science Centre and the La Brea Tar Pits. And, and of course, going to the you know, Universal Studios and 
and places like that because here in America you have to do that. And, uh, and then we go to the Space Academy in Huntsville. And what do you do at the Space Academy? The Space Academy is basically, there's, I suppose, three things that they look at. One is the astronaut training. So they do all the, all the mock training, um, including the multi-axis trainer where you spin around in all directions, looking at G-forces. They do a, a microgravity, so they get dressed up in scuba gear and hop in a tank and do experiments. They also look at the, the mission control and the logistics, and also they work on doing adventure training. So leadership-type goal-setting experience. Is there anything for the students who can't afford to go to the US? Not at the moment in Australia as far as space, but one of the things we've, we've actually developed over the, the last five years, the, our first time when we asked for expressions of interest, we had close to 200 students from around New South Wales that wanted to go on the trip, but the cost was prohibitive. And we were organising for team activities for the students who were going so they could actually meet each other. So now we've actually opened up those team activities to students from all around Sydney to get to. So we, we run excursions on weekends and, and during the school holidays to universities, to museums. And whenever there's an activity that involves science, then because we've got a network we make sure that we advertise it. So if an organisation, for example, Ansto, is running a, an activity, if that's open to the public, we make sure we advertise it. And these students go, and it's really good because they actually get to meet up with, with other like-minded students. And finally, can you tell me about the dangers of DHMO? Dihydrogen monoxide, not many people actually know about the, the dangers. And in fact, over the last month, I think it's, there's been an increase in the amount that's been, been found in New South Wales, especially with the increase in rain that we've had. Dihydrogen monoxide, it's the, the major component of acid rain. It's, it's found in rabid dogs in their saliva. It's, as a chemical, people don't realise that it corrodes metal. And if you ingest it, the large amounts then it's, it's fatal. And unfortunately, there's this conspiracy, I think, by the government that they don't tell people about it. In fact, they're stockpiling it, aren't they? They are. In fact, I've, I've heard that, that they've been feeding it to, to prisoners. And, and, and when we talk about ethics, whether that's ethical or not, I've, I've seen posters where, where people have been um, addicted to to having it and in fact the addiction is so so much I, in fact I know of a science teacher and science teachers actually get their ability to to, to get into chemicals because you, you think about it in a school you've got so many chemicals but I know of one science teacher that for probably the last five years has been adding it to to coffee and ingesting it now I know if he was to stop with the dihydrogen monoxide, because of the addiction, probably within five days he would die. But this story, you know, people don't hear about it. I don't know if you want to advise people on what they should do. 
I, I think if anybody is actually suffers from contamination with dihydrogen monoxide, most definitely not to add water to it because that'll just make it worse. But most definitely seek advice. Well, Ken Silburn, thank you very much. Thank you. And of course, the chemical formula for dihydrogen monoxide is H2O, water. That was Ken Silburn, who will be giving the 10th annual Einstein Lecture at the Powerhouse Museum on the 14th of August. You can buy tickets for only $7 at sydneyscience.com.au. Ken Silburn will discuss scientific theories, how misconceptions are generated, how public opinion is manipulated, and other issues of interest to the modern citizen on planet Earth. As he said, the cats were not pushed. I've been around a lot and talked with some of these research men, and they won't make predictions because they deal only in facts. But they're on their way to new ideas, new things that will astonish us when they are announced. For instance, one research man said recently, There is one research that has been going on for a long time to find out why we can see through glass. You say it's transparent, but that's merely an adjective, not a reason. Engineers think they know what friction is, but actually they can't yet tell you what it is, any more than they can tell you what electricity is. In one big research laboratory, They're trying to find out what makes grass green. And the answer to that question may keep us industrially busy for years. We have discovered how to manufacture rubber from coal, limestone, salt, and water. From a product of cotton, we are spinning a filament finer than that of the silkworm. Out of air, water, and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Chemistry is creating new and more comfortable homes, giving you finer and yet vastly cheaper motor cars, better clothes, purer food, and sounder health. And the chemical age is just dawning. Already, industry is making airplane propellers with sour milk as an ingredient. Roads from cotton and artificial leather from the same material. The time may come when the American farmer will grow a crop of automobile engines or rocking chairs. And remember, every time one of these infant industries clicks with the public, gives you what you want, presto, a new industry is created with new jobs and new payrolls. Here are just a few lusty infants. Unbreakable optical lenses for your glasses. Gasoline from sea sand. Rubies from peach pits. Artificial wool from cheese, but uh, not with the holes. Sheep have been raised on chemicals from the laboratory. It's a bewildering future, all right. Last week, I visited a noisy meeting of the Sydney Biohackers, where Dr Heather Main, along with artist Pat Pillai, was talking about the Neural Network's Knitted Brain Cell artwork and the science behind it for the upcoming Sydney Science Festival. Dr Heather Main works with embryonic stem cells, mainly producing types of cells from the brain. Due to the ethical issues around using embryonic stem cells, Heather's become very interested in the ethical questions as well. 
She's recently focused on the ethics of people using the words stem cells to sell unproven therapies to patients. I began by asking her, what is stem cell tourism? So stem cell tourism is when a company basically says to you, we have a stem cell treatment that's going to fix you. You just need to travel to China or Russia and pay us and we'll do that. And why do you have to travel? Why couldn't you do it here? Because they're unproven treatments, so there's no publications to say that there's even stem cells involved or that the treatment does anything. There's no research and they haven't been tested in the hospital setting. So you would never legally be allowed to provide these treatments in Australia because there's absolutely no evidence to say that they are in any way beneficial and there's no evidence either to say that there's stem cells involved. Isn't there a company in Australia that's offering to take stem cells from your fat and inject it into your joints to help your arthritis? There are at least 40 different individuals in Australia. So there's a medical exemption in Australia when a practitioner for one patient and one disease that he's taking care of that patient, he can take any cells from that person and put them back into any location of the body. So in Australia, it would be legal for me as a medical practitioner to take out a part of your liver and inject it into your brain if I wanted to. And so we have a lot of, particularly cosmetic surgeons, because they're doing liposuction, there's evidence to say that some of the cells uh, in fat tissue could turn into cartilage or bone. And so the plastic surgeons, because they're already doing liposuction, they can take out the fat, they can fractionate it, they can spin it in the centrifuge and put a specific fraction of that into your knee with no evidence to say that it's actually going to create cartilage. They, they have no prior research. They really don't follow up because they don't have expertise in cartilage or in knees or in bones. So they don't even have the machines to be able to check and see if your cartilage has regenerated. But they're basing on the work of other people in animals or the work of other people in humans to say that they're doing the same thing and essentially they're not. So that's one of those things, they advertise that the treatments only work for a while and then you need to get a repeat treatment. Is that really how it would work if it was genuinely stem cells? Well, there's two types of stem cell therapies that, that you could imagine in this world. Like cell therapies, to a large extent, uh, are in development at the moment. So one type would be the more type pharmaceutical type of stem cell treatments. So imagine that cells are put into my blood, they travel around in my blood for a couple of days, they get stuck in different tissues, wherever they get stuck, they might signal to some of the cells there and then they'll die or they'll be cleared from the body. But in that very, very brief period where they're signaling to some cell in my body somewhere, they may have a beneficial effect. So if a little cartilage cell is sitting there struggling and it's like, oh, am I gonna die, am I gonna die? Then another cell coming along and saying to it, no, you'll be fine, it's okay, maybe it stops that cell from dying. So there could be a pharmaceutical effect where in a very, very short time period, within three days, because the cells are cleared from the body within three days, there could be a small pharmaceutical effect 
And the second type would be integrative. So if I have Parkinson's disease, the dopaminergic neurons in my brain die, I want to replace them with dopaminergic neurons. In that case, you want the cells that you're putting in to integrate into the brain, form the cell type that's supposed to actually carry out that function and stay there. If it's cleared from the body within three days, it's not fixing anything. So they're the two types, sort of more pharmaceutical and integrative is the long-term. Really the integrative therapies are what the stem cell industry has been talking about. That's what we've all been so excited about. These short-term sort of pharmaceutical effects are really, it's the lower hanging fruit, but it's really not the most exciting ones. Where is the excitement? There's three therapies that work and that we are sure they work. One is bone marrow transplantation, the second one is skin for like burns victims, and the third one is cornea. And that can be from the same person. They'll take the corneal stem cells from a healthy eye, and maybe you've got a chemical burn in the other eye, they'll transfer them to the other eye, and they've shown that they can produce a functional cornea. So they are the only three integrative stem cell therapies that are proven to work. Other ones that are developing at the moment for macular degeneration, they've produced retinal pigment epithelial cells and they're trying to fix different types of macular degeneration. Other things, Parkinson's is going to be very soon in terms of integrative stem cell therapies. Basically, somewhere in the world there is someone researching every disease and every organ to develop some type of cell therapy, some type of stem cell therapy, but really those are the ones at the forefront at the moment, macular degeneration and I would say Parkinson's disease. If you need to travel for it, if you need to pay for it, it's not worth it. Well, Heather Main, thank you very much. No worries, thanks. That was Dr Heather Main talking about proven and unproven stem cell therapies at the Sydney Biohacker meeting. Remember, she could put a piece of your liver in your brain if she wanted. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. And tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two Double X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for videos and links about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.